My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night. And of course, as you know, FOMO Sapiens 24-7-365. And today we're going to be talking about unexpected entrepreneurship. And my guest is Anthony Katz, who is the founder of recovery technology company Hyperice. Now, if you haven't heard of recovery technology, basically Anthony, who was a teacher and a basketball coach turned his own aches and pains into a recovery tool that is now used by some of the biggest athletes in the world. He makes products like Hyperice and Hypervolt massagers, which sit under the seats now of every NBA player during games. So if you're watching the NBA, you will see them <laughs> massaging themselves with their Hypervolt. And I actually have one of these things. And that's why I wanted him to come on the show because I started using this this product, this Hypervolt, and I, it's like a percussive massager kind of thing. And I got to tell you, I was like, wow, where have you been all my life? And so I just love the product and great products usually mean great entrepreneurs. And so I started doing a little research about Anthony, found out his story. And then I found out that in 2020, the company completed a series A funding for about $50 million that valued the company at around $700 million with investors like athletes including Anthony Davis, Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook, and Naomi Osaka. Now, here's what you're going to learn and hear about on this episode. So first of all, the origin story of this company is incredible. Basically, Anthony made a prototype for this product that he just kind of dreamed up, and then he got Kobe Bryant to test it and become his first customer. So you're going to hear that story. You're going to hear all about that transition from school teacher and coach to full-time entrepreneur. And we're going to talk about how we attracted all of those major sports stars to become investors in the company and what makes those types of investors different from your run-of-the-mill investors. Now, my small ask today is share this episode with somebody who you think could be an sort of an unexpected entrepreneur. As anybody who listens to this show knows, I'm a big believer in starting things part-time, 10% entrepreneurship, which is exactly what Anthony did. And I think it's a great way for people to try out entrepreneurship and maybe go full-time. So if you know somebody who might want to do that or you think is capable of doing that, share this episode with them. All right. And now on to the interview. So as you know, I'd like to start with a good question to get deep early on. And so I asked Anthony my favorite question. What's the most important decision that you've had to make to get to where you are today? Well, I guess it would go back to, you know, just, I mean, starting the company. I mean, I, I, I never really had aspirations of being an entrepreneur. Um, I was a high school teacher. I, it really started out as almost like an art project. Like I was getting a little bit older. I was an avid basketball player and I was trying to combat like soreness. And so I noticed that players iced a lot and that was like, there was no recovery technology at the time. It was just players sat in ice tubs and ice or joints got massages and i was like okay there's one of those things i could do which is ice so i um instead of filling a plastic bag and kind of doing it how the conventional way i, I went to a wetsuit factory and and cut up some 
um, scrap pieces of neoprene that I thought would be in the configuration of, a, of what looked like a knee wrap. Got a medical ice bag that I used to see um, when I lived in Australia. The rugby players would all ice at these like old kind of old school medical ice bags, and kind of came up with this sort of you know combination of those two things and started icing. And you know I was playing basketball at UC Irvine. That's where Kobe Bryant used to work out in the off season. My friend was coach uh, training him and said, "Hey, you should show this to." Uh, he's like, "He's like, I want to show Kobe this. Can you?" And so I made I made two of them um, and and kind of made him for him and he agreed to meet me and started just kind of like wearing because he was just curious he's a very curious person and um you know the sort of the i, I was just like grew up a laker fan and huge basketball fan so um you know just a, i didn't have a business yet no you know not even close to a business and this is just something that i was doing so i ended up um making him a pair and he's like all right i'll give you some feedback so give me a couple of weeks and so he was really thoughtful and came back to me two weeks two weeks later and agreed to meet me again and then said all right here's all the things and kind of like broke down like what he liked and what he didn't like and kind of was gave some really thoughtful feedback and then he kind of basically threw out this challenge he goes look he's like i like the idea of having something i could ice with every day instead of filling a plastic bag he's like if you can make it look cool and if it looks and if it works better he's like i'm all about what works if it works better than what i do now um, he's like, I'll wear that on the bench when we're blowing teams out. Cause that's kind of a thing in basketball. Like if you're f- fourth quarter of a blowout and you kind of start preparing for the next game. And so at that point I was like, Oh, well this, you know, the best player in the world just said he would, you know, he would wear something if I made it. So it was kind of like kind of threw down the challenge of, you know, all right, could, could I develop this thing? And I had no product development experience, no business experience, but the decision right there was like, I have to, I actually have to like start a business because I, I have to bring in other people and expertise to help me like develop this product. Cause he gave me some very clear direction. And then I had some ideas of my own on how I could make it better. Um, I had one big one that turned out to be like the core of the product. And then, so really just like deciding to just do it, you know, I mean, I would say like along the way you make, um, you know, there's this, when I was coaching basketball, I read this book by Phil Jackson called Sacred Hoops, and he talks about how in a game you make a hundred decisions, and you make them really fast, and they're 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 small, and then the collection of those decisions is like how you kind of coach the game. And I'd say like in business, it's the same thing. You're making like you know dozens of decisions a day. Sometimes they have more weight than others, but um, if you say like, well, what's the biggest one? Well, I mean, I guess it would have to be the fact to even to jump in the water in the first place, right? Um, if I, if I, if I would, if I would have just, if you would have just said, Hey, thanks, it's cool. I use it and that's it. Then I don't know. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I don't know if I would have like quit my job and started a business. Were you one of those people? I mean, there's a lot of these people who, you know, they had the paper route and they had tried to start a million things and all their families entrepreneurs. And when they were in high school, they were mowing 50 lawns and, you know, all bought a car or were you one of these people who just, you know, you, you hadn't even done it. You weren't like naturally entrepreneurial, I guess. Like, did you have that background? Not, not at all. And, and I didn't really have any, I mean, when you go into education, you, it, it's, it's just a different path, right? You're not mm-hmm. really thinking about, you're not going into, into it for the money. I was going into it. I was go, I went into it because I liked understanding the world. And so I majored in history and political science. Um, I liked following things that happened in the world and history was a way to like not only get people to understand the the past but to understand where we're going and I like being around young people and then you know I was a huge basketball you know I, I still played and, and loved the game so it kept me in touch with the game and I don't know it was sort of just a like 
I never really thought about it in terms of I wasn't entrepreneurial. I wasn't someone who was always like dreamt of having a business. I come from a, you know, I'm 44. So I come from a different time where an entrepreneur, someone who owned a business mm. when I was growing up, that meant someone who like had a physical, like physical place of business, like a brick and mortar shop that sold something or made something. Um, it really wasn't until I think it was Sean Parker, you know, was like the first like internet entrepreneur that I ever heard of that. Like, you know, when we were in college and you heard about this kid in his dorm room starting Napster and, you know, it was something we all used and understood and it was like, oh, now an entrepreneur can be someone who just like has an idea and like kind of like create something in sort of a different medium. And and I think that like this generation always feels like they're one idea away from creating a next app or creating, you know, something in, in, the, in technology that could work. But I just grew up at a different time. Like it just like we're living in like a very like entrepreneurial culture now. And I think it's kind of like, I call like the shark tank generation. Like they all grew up watching the show where like, you always think you're one idea away from being a success. I just, I didn't, companies just were different back then. Like, you know, it it was, we just viewed business different. And at least, at least I did. And I didn't have a really entrepreneurial family. My dad worked for an energy company for my whole life and um, sort of, it, it, there was there was it was just not nothing that really um like really prepared me to for what i was doing and, and it's just it makes me such an unlikely person to like have done this fomo tudo bem meus queridos fomo sapiens now that right there was portuguese and as you know i love speaking foreign languages but i'm not alone one in five americans have learned a new language on their bucket list if that's you make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with babel the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. Yeah, you're a lot like me, actually, as I listen to this. I'm your age. I grew up in a small town. You know, for me, an entrepreneur, like you owned a a Dairy Queen franchise, right? Or a diner or you painted houses and stuff like that. My dad worked for the government. And so I didn't have an entrepreneurial bone in my body until the world kind of conspired. Like I didn't have Kobe Bryant. That's an incredible (laughs) kind of, you know, when Kobe Bryant's telling you something like that, I can only imagine how that felt in that moment. Now, I can also imagine that when you decided to start doing this, probably a lot of people, you know, you know how it is, like you got the doubters and the people said like, oh, are you sure about this? Or, oh, well, you, you really want to take that risk? Like, how did you overcome the naysayers to get the confidence to say like, I'm going to go for this? Yeah, you know, I I don't know because people probably didn't tell me to my face, but I could imagine what they were thinking. I just, there was just really no like, logical reason why I should have like stopped my job and like started a business. Um, other than the fact that like, you know, I've always been a relationship centered person and not a transactional person. And maybe that's why education was a natural fit. But I think maybe the one thing 
you know, it, it, I would say that there wasn't any track record for me to like to, to, to give people confidence in it. But there was also like I, I always say like a lot of what I've built with Hyperice has been because of just relationships. And I think I was always pretty good at that, um, you know, meeting people and developing relationships that there was no agenda behind it. And when I started Hyperice, I was able to leverage a lot of the relationships I had built before business that had nothing to do with business that were just more, um, you know, from, from my, from my past career. And yeah, you know, I, I don't know that I was ever overcoming. I had a pretty supportive, um, family. Like my, my, my dad was kind of like, Oh, okay. Like, Hey, if you're going to try this, try it, you know? And, and, uh, and there was, I, I didn't really have like, I think anyone like pushing against me. I'm sure that people were like, okay, whatever, you know, this, you know, like, like most businesses, we'll try it and then it won't work. And then he could, you know, he'll go back to something else. Maybe that's what they were thinking, but um, maybe they were too nice to tell me. But um, I never really saw it as like I have to overcome, you know, people. There was no like, you know, headwinds. It was more I just have to learn and learn fast. And that was another thing that I think, you know, I wouldn't trade my education for for anything. Like I'm glad I didn't go to business school. It might sound weird. I didn't have any like preconceived notions about anything. I kind of came in as this like really humble, really kind of naive, like, well, I need to learn everything because I don't know anything. Um, and so I think in a way it helped me. And and so in a weird way. And because I, I didn't go in with any sort of preset of ideas or I wasn't running some like blueprint that I thought would work. It was sort of like, hey, I have to like kind of be adaptable. And I think that's the most important thing for any business leader or business is to be adaptable. And the world was changing so fast anyway. I mean, I could just say even since I started High Price, it's a, just the world, the business world is completely, completely different. And, you know, if, if you have a marketing degree from like before 2015 you know, or 60, I mean, even up to recently, like that's just, it's just changing so fast that um, you kind of got to just be in it. You know, I, I think I've gotten a great education on how to develop products. I had to, you know, raise money. I had to build a team. I mean, there's just, there's so many things that you learn from doing it that, um, and I'm the biggest proponent of education ever, but I, I just, my biggest thing is you don't have to have a business degree to get to, to become an entrepreneur. Yeah, for sure. And are you, as I listen to you, I'm thinking back because we had Stacy Madison on the show a little while ago. She's the founder of Stacy's pita chips, which we've all eaten and enjoyed. And her story is a lot like yours. You know, she kind of stumbled on this idea because they were frying up the leftover pita because they had to, they had a sandwich cart in downtown Boston, and you know she, I mean, she took that and turned it into a company. She sold to Frito Lay. She started other companies, but you know, it wasn't like she. It it just kind of happened, and she was, she reacted and, and was resilient and looked for help and did the right things. And the the market was there. Now I'm really curious about the market you're in, which is this recovery tech space. So you you know you started out with with this one product, which is, you know, this, mm -hmm. this hyper ice uh, product and it's moved into a bunch of other things. So like what, you know, it seems like a huge space has just been growing. You kind of got on the right rocket ship. Take us, give us, like, educate us about the industry and how it's changed since you started. Well, the, the industry, and I tell this most of the time when I, when I kind of talk about like what we've done and what Norma Tech, which is now part of high price had done is there, there wasn't really a, a, an industry of like what we, we now call like kind of recovery technology didn't really exist even 10 years ago. It was sort of these medical device companies that were making medical devices for mostly like post-surgery or other applications that athletes were, you know, training staffs were sort of 
applying in a way that would kind of help promote recovery or sort of day-to-day kind of body maintenance or help guys get treatment. But there was really no connection between the brands and, and the athletes. There was no one who was like listening to the voice of the athlete. All these products were like what I call kind of, you know, they call them, it's called capital equipment. It's like thousands of dollars worth of equipment. That's like a big machine. You need a trainer to operate it. It created a reliance of the player on the training staff to like go into the facility and I need to go use this machine. So like they'd go in and they'd get it administered and then they'd go home. And so then really became, you know, the age of sort of like, hey, well, I could, you know, maybe I'll put a, an ice tub in my house or I'll get, uh, you know, guys are getting masseuses coming more regularly. And so what really the first high price did was I got a product that players started wearing. That was the biggest thing. Like I went, I didn't sell it. I got it on, I got it on a bunch of NBA players. I, and that was like my whole goal was like, I'm going to create a groundswell by getting it on the world's best and see the trickle down effect. But what that did is it got me into the training room of a lot of some of the, you know, like I was getting in, like a player would wear it and say, Hey, I want you to come show my trainer. And when I would go out, I'd fly out to go, you know, I mean, early on, you know, whether it was in, in whether it was in basketball, whether it was like going to see the Dallas Mavericks or going to, uh, in, in football, going to see the Houston Texans or going to University of Oregon or wherever I was, I wasn't going to sell my product because I already had guys wearing it. I was really going there for like Intel. I was like, okay, I kind of felt that my product had a pretty narrow use case and I wanted to like come up with something else too, to have like a full brand at this point. But I was like, well, why I'd always ask trainers, what's next? Like, what do you, what, what would you like? And they're like, well, everyone's into soft tissue now. Like, that's the big thing. Like, we're getting more massage. We're having massage therapists now that travels with the team. And like, th- if you could address this. So I'd always see people rolling on foam rollers because there was like 20 foam rollers in everyone. And then I would always see these vibration platforms. And there was a lot of evidence around vibration being good for the body in different applications, not only in platforms, but in like tools. So I said, well, that's a common tool. So why don't we put vibration, which has a lot of, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of science behind it, put it in a very common delivery system. And so that was the, my idea for the second product. And so the second product was really the one that like kind of unlocked a different kind of avenue for us because now we weren't just an icing brand. We were like, okay, now we made a soft tissue product. Guys were using it as a warm up tool. And because we had kind of established a good client base of the first product, it, it grew really fast and the company grew 5x the first year of the Viper, the, the, the Vipers, which is the vibrating foam roller. It won product of the year, I think, in I think fitness product of the year and I think a couple of big publications like Men's Fitness and Men's Health. And I remember at that point saying, okay, like I grew up in the age of Apple where you have like, you know, your iPhone, your Mac, you know, you, you, and then you have like you know, your situational products and I'm like, this is kind of what this needs to be is like, as an athlete, we could address every need, the warm-up, the recovery, like the day-to-day body maintenance, and then treatment. So if we could kind of address all that and we have a suite of products, we would be able to kind of like become this sort of like, you know, the Dyson for the human body, what Dyson does at the home, or the Apple for the human body. I mean, never being, you know, obviously at that level, I'm just saying we're a company that makes a suite of technology that addresses all the needs of the body. And so... What I really wanted to do is, I, I use the term, as like I wanted to appleize it. It was like the industry was IBM, where it was like in the 80s, you had like in the early 80s, like mainframe computers. They weren't very human friendly. Like, you know, the IT person had to teach you how to use it. You didn't really put it in your home. And then, you know, Steve Jobs came along and said, no, we're going to make computers interact with the human in a friendly way and put them on people's desks and put them in schools and then eventually in your home and then eventually in your hand. 
And so that's kind of what I wanted to do was, you know, they use the word democratize and say, okay, fine. I use Appleize, whatever it is. It's just make technology, turn these products into Apple products. They're, they're portable. You could take them anywhere. They're intuitive and they serve the human. So that's like a snapshot of, I would say, like where the industry was super outdated, no brands really communicating directly with the athlete or listening to them. And I just listened. I just went in and I just pulled a bunch of intel from athletes and trainers. And every product we have is either uh, was was a cue taken from them on, you know, the venom is like, you know, players are like, hey, we use heat on the sidelines. The hydrochloric pads suck. They're really, they're gross. Can you make something better? Okay, we made, we, we developed the venom. Um, you know, when I made the vibrating foam roller, people were saying, hey, we use a vibrating hammer. It was this like really crude early you know, precursor to a percussion. That device. sounds scary, by the way. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and then now massage guns are like pretty ubiquitous. But but back then, it was there was this one company that did it. It was nine pounds. It plugged in. You could only use it for a half hour at a time. And so, I was getting all the ideas because I was on the inside. And so that's why people ask you, oh, "Are you going to change the name from High Price?" Because like now you do all that stuff. I'm like, no, that's there's such a story behind it. And like that's the product that got me in into the world where I saw the needs for all this. And then I said, okay, well now I know what the needs are. So now we just got to make the product. Yeah. I can see these like marketing people that come to you and they're probably like, well, you should rename the company Nuvera or something. You know what I mean? You know how they (laughs) always do that. Um, I like, okay. So just what you just said is really interesting because you talk about the appleizing and the idea and we all, I mean, it's, if you go back to the original Apple kind of suite of services. Somebody told me this or I read it somewhere that you could fit the entire Apple universe on like one table. On a conference now, table. That was, that was Jobs said all our products should fit on a conference table. Exactly. Now you've got like, I mean, they've gone, there are more products. It's a much bigger set of things. And they've been pretty successful actually, I, I have to say. Like they haven't had many duds in their suite. But there's always a risk when you start expanding and expanding and expanding that you go too far afield or you don't do it well or you just kind of like you're spread too thin and you have a little bit of a FOMO strategy. And I imagine you get ideas all the time where people come to you and say, do this, do that. How do you choose between the ones you want to do and the ones you just want to say, eh, it's not for us? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I definitely, well, because the other thing I say is that if our products are so good, they should make your life more simple. You shouldn't need 20 of them. It's not like, okay, I got to do this now, and then I got to do this, and I have, it's, if we can have, you know, I say we have like, you know, the, the core products that we have, right, that are like, that every human could benefit from. And then, then you have your more situational or ancillary products that like, you know, hey, if I'm, you know, if I'm not a performance athlete, and I'm just kind of, you know, you know older, and I'm just trying to keep my body healthy, like a hyper and a Normatec would do someone just fine. But like, you know, for someone like me, like I play basketball two days a week, like I love having my Viper because that's a great warm up product. So, it's a, so any, if I'm a performance athlete, I still think that's the, like the best way to warm up. But that's situational. So it's not as broad as, as maybe some of our other products. Um, I would say that you kind of have to be, you, you kind of have to discriminate when it comes to like ideas that come to you as far as, hey, I really think that's going to work. Or I don't, because there's kind of two decisions that have to be made now is like, is there a business case for it? And does this add like value to people? Like, is this, is, is, does this product serve a big enough purpose where it's like, Hey, people would really want that. That's question one. And then does it have, uh, is there, can you build a business case around it? Cause you could say like, Hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to 
you know, make this product and you need like the blood of a bald eagle to run it, it's like not very, you know, you can't really build, build a business case around that, right? Um, but if it's something where it's, it has, where I can clearly see like, hey, people would benefit from this, even whether it's an athlete or just a regular person, it would contribute to someone's health or well being. And there's a business case around it. That's sort of the criteria. But I mean, I do think there's a danger in getting, becoming, and, and having just more and more stuff. Because then you start to ask the question, well, if I, why do, I mean, if you're trying to simplify my life and your products are so good, you know, they should sort of like, kind of like take out a bigger need section of my life. And so I feel like that's a, you, it, there's definitely a balance between, you know, we just launched the Hyperice X, which is, I think, our, maybe our most innovative product. Um, and that will kind of replace some of our older products. And, and so um, there's not just what products are you adding, but what products kind of become more obsolete. Because I, I kind of, philosophy of, of, of Apple too, is like it should all fit on a conference table. FOMO. FOMO. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when a company that gets into that territory and it's like they get really thirsty and you're sort of like you used you you customers know it's not authentic. They're like this person just trying to get squeeze more out of me, and then also you start to not be able to distinguish between the products. And so it gets you go on the website and you're like I, I don't even know at this point, and it's hard to decide. So it's a, it's just it's a tricky place to be in. Now you, one of the things that I think is kind of fascinating about what you've been able to build is that you have got a roster of really you know well-respected athletes that are not just, you know, the faces of the company. Like I just saw on your website, you have Robin Arson of Peloton, who is, I mean, she's like amazing, right? And people love her and they feel passionate about her. Um, and you see her as the face of some of your products. But then you also have a, a stable of investors who are also athletes. So I, I, a lot of people see that and they wonder how you pull that off. Like what has been your strategy to get those types of people to either represent your company or to represent you, you know, to join you as investors? Yeah, I certainly wasn't first, but I, de I think definitely early on, I think the first money we raised from athletes was all the way back in 2010, like when I very first started the company. Um, That's before every athlete thought there was a venture capitalist. Now they all, you know, everybody, yeah. every, every athlete's yeah. a VC at this point. Yeah, it, it was definitely newer at that time. Um, you know, you had heard some stories of athletes investing in some brands that, that hit it big, but there was also, you know, um, people go to athletes for investment cause they're pretty liquid. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, a lot of people that are, you know, making, you know, you know, eight figures are, are, are usually, you know, comped in other ways and, you know, not, not just making that much in income. So I think they also are in culture and they get to see things early and, and so I feel like athletes have really realized how powerful they are as investors because they get early looks at stuff. People want them invested in their brands. They, they play a, you know, uh, they have a high profile role in our culture. I think for me, what it really was about though, was that the athletes, I go back to the Warren Buffett, you invest in things you understand and they just understood it. Like most of the athletes that I never really pitched anyone. Like a lot, I, I go back to the early investors and they were like, using the product, liking the product, and saw that like this had other applications outside of sport. It's just crazy that a lot of them invested just in the high price and had no you know, idea what was going to come after that. Um, and so, I, you know, some people say, oh, you invest in the person and the founder and like, okay, yeah. But I, I, humbly speaking, I don't really think that was it. I think it was, they were, it was a time where athletes were becoming more entrepreneurial. It was just sort of like, it was just where they started to think more entrepreneurially. 
And, um, I had something that, you know, I had a couple athletes invest early that were pretty high profile that people said, Oh, okay. If he's in, I'm in, or if she's in, I'm in. And that kind of, you know, when, when we raise money later on, um, we, the last time in 2020, by that time it was really easy. We were like the dominant player in sports. We were the, that time we were the official partner of the NBA and the NFL and, um, the actually the NBA and the NFL in, invested in the company, which was pretty rare, I think, to have both of the major sports leagues like you know invest in a company at the same time. And so it just became like, again, going back to like, hey, I I know this, I understand it, I like the products, I use the products, and you know it, we we made it easy. Um, and you know, you look at, you know, there's a lot of athletes like I know a lot of vegan athletes that invested in a company like Beyond Meat and did really well. Um, because they understood it and they liked it and it was something that they believed in. So I think values investing, investing in things you believe in, um, you know, I think in things you understand are, are two kind of like core principles that I think a lot of athletes are applying and they're doing a really good job of, you know, realizing that, you know, they could band together and there's a lot of these funds now that are like highly concentrated with athlete money and those are attracting some really good companies and, you know, they're getting really good protections on their investments and they're re- and it's, it's smart. Yeah, it is. And it's great to see athletes who are thinking long term about how to diversify because you hear these stories how people have made a ton of money and then because of a bad manager, Mm -hmm. they end up in real financial problems. And to see athletes, this new generation that thinks like owners and understands that they can build something and that they can have a career afterwards. They don't just have to have a car dealership. It's a very, it's a really inspiring model. Now, Anthony, you're clear of FOMO Sapiens. Your path, the story you've told us is it's it's classical FOMO sapiens kind of stuff, but you're also human, and so I'm curious as you build all of this, and I mean you're you're just doing it's a very cool company and a, it's just an amazing story, but I'm sure you're missing out on something. So, what what gives you FOMO? What do you feel like you're missing out on? Um, you know, I've really kind of tried to turn over a new lease the last year or so of mm-hmm. um. You know, I really having kids change that where it's mm-hmm. like I have a five year old, a three year old, and um, I just don't want to be the guy that, like, hey, I, you know, I built this great company and, and had some success, but it was at the expense of, you know, not seeing this or not being able to watch my, you know, pick up my kid from school once in a while or go to their sports games or whatever. So I really made a concerted effort a couple, you know, I, I actually I t- had a pretty big role here. Um, on the sort of content production side and I kind of had stepped back and we kind of have used agencies and, um, I, you know, that was a hard thing to sort of kind of give up cause you do it for almost 10 years and then mm. that goes and, 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 but that's, it's freed up a lot of time for me to focus on other things. Like this year I've kind of dug in more onto like sort of the big picture strategy stuff and sort of operationally how we become more efficient, which is, um, you know, which is, it, it's been good kind of like learning about, the nuts and bolts a little bit more because when you're on the creative side, product side, you're kind of always moving so fast and looking forward and you just hope that all that stuff's operating underneath you. So this year I've kind of taken more of an interest in um, sort of the nuts and bolts and efficiency stuff and understanding really kind of um, how the whole house is kind of built top to bottom. But as far as like what I'm missing out on, I mean, I've really tried to um, to kind of keep perspective and not um, and, and, and not let you know, well, we, you, you could love what you do and it could be, you could be passionate about it, but you could still have a balance and do other things you love. Nice. 
That's what I try to do too. I don't, I'm not always successful, but I try. All right, the company is Hyperice. If you want to find out more, go to www.hyperice.com. You can find them on Instagram and on Twitter, also at Hyperice. Anthony Katz, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. FOMO. Can't get enough of FOMO Sapiens? Join me on Patreon for ad-free episodes, bonus material, and exclusive content that will help you to master FOMO and position yourself for greater success in both business and life. Go to patreon.com slash FOMO Sapiens to learn more. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on LinkedIn. I love hearing from you, so don't be shy. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMOSapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO. FOMO.